this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and andy and i are back we can rebuild them we can make them better than they were well maybe hello and welcome to the film file i'm lee ford and i'm doing the theme tune again <laughs> <laughs> And I'm Andy Meakin. And it is uh, interesting how we always need the theme tune. One of us has to hum it or we have to hum the theme to know when to come in. Uh, and it's not even like it's it's not even uh, time perfect. It's not. I mean, we've no. done it. We do it every week. It's it's never never spot on. But it's just need it's that. just we need that. It, it just doesn't feel right. We've done it before now where we've just started talking and then we just kind of lost our train of thought within like two <laughs> minutes. And it's like what's what's wrong? We didn't do the theme tune. <laughs> and this is us back with a proper show so uh you had a a proper show and i went on holiday we recorded that just before i went away we had a, a fill-in last week on the on a deep dive special but i can proudly say andy and i are back with another film file and it's good to be back and uh, of course i picked the perfect week to be uh to be away when there was a ton of news it's as simple as that. There was just so much news. And, and I kept looking on Twitter while I was away going, yep, somebody else we need to talk about. Yep, that's a big story. Need to talk about that. Batgirl, which we'll talk about later. Have to talk about that. It's it's not a wide variety of news across loads of different projects, but there's been a ton of news around one particular studio yes. uh, that just kept breaking and breaking. And I'm talking about the studio is breaking and breaking yeah. and breaking. But we'll get to that in the news section. I've had news as well this week that uh, whilst I was supposed to be ending my tenure in Banbury on the 12th, I'm now ending it on the 30th of August, so wow. I've got another few weeks down there. So another three or so um, weeks before you uh, before you're done. Come back to sunny Sheffield, and it is sunny today. They've requested for me to assist them while there's some holidays going over the next few weeks, and I'm more than happy to stay down there. To be honest with you, it is going to be hard leaving that cinema. It's going to be really that's, hard. That's good. I mean, you went in with some trepidation. You had to say goodbye to the folks at your usual venue, and you know, I'm glad it's all worked out. I'm glad it's been uh, been a success for you. I mean, it was summed up by one of the other managers there who said to me last week that, you know, he thinks it's absolutely remarkable what I've done because it's not just like, yeah, I was going to a whole, a whole new cinema. So it was like starting a new job with whole new people. But I was doing it in a town that I've never been to yeah. without my family there. So there was no one. I literally just took that plunge and went to a completely... A completely unknown place. And, and now said, coming like, home he is difficult. finds it absolutely remarkable. Yeah. And yeah. Especially now that you've rented is. out your bedroom. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be nice to no longer live in a hotel room, but it is just going to be strange coming back to Sheffield. I mean, I do, I am looking forward to come back to Sheffield. I do miss the team at the Sheffield you. Cinema and I do miss my family, obviously, and all my friends around here. But I've made up, I've made such a great bunch of friends and work colleagues Fantastic. down there in a great cinema. And it, it's it's been my home for three months. So I can't believe yeah. it's been three months. To be honest, Andy, it, it's it's really flown by. It has indeed since we started. Uh, I know it kind of threw uh, us out initially with with our our run of shows, but we we've got over that. Um, we we didn't miss that much. We've worked out ways <laughs> to be able to keep recording. Um, but when I do come back, uh, well. I'll come back just in time for the Sheffield's screening of Oxide Ghosts, the Brass Eye Tapes with the yes. Q&A, which we've been requested to host the Q&A for. I can't wait. 
Uh, yeah, it, that, that'll be playing at Sheffield Light. It's playing at the Light Cinemas across the UK. And for those who don't know what Oxide Ghost is, the Brass Eye tapes, anyone who watched the Brass Eye TV series, huge fan here, huge yeah, fan of too. Brass Eye. Uh, it's Michael Cummins, who was the director on all the episodes, sharing from his own personal footage and archives the behind the scenes and the making of and the problems that they encountered, the f- like the pushback that they got at times. And it's the film came out initially in 2017, but it can only get shown as special live screenings due to rights issues on various elements. Um, okay. But Chris, Mor- Chris Morris gives it the full blessing. And so it's doing a tour across the UK. Check to see if there's any cinemas near you who are, who are showing it. But if you're in the Sheffield area, Sunday the 4th of September, Tickets are on sale now for it. And uh, um, yes, uh, Film File will be hosting the Q&A. Uh, we're still waiting for further details and get a chance to watch it so we can actually um, draw upon it. But so excited to be a part of this. Fantastic. Fantastic. Finally, if you've never met Andy or I, then you get to meet us, buy us dinner. Was that buy too much dinner, to ask? Am I asking I, too much to ask? It's, never, it's never too it. much to ask. I, no, no, no. But I mean, and Nando's will do as far as I'm concerned. I was like those, <laughs> those people on... Um, on Twitter or on Instagram where you have to buy them gifts, usually ladies with uh, uh, just a vest on um, <laughs> asking for gifts. I think that's only fans, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, uh, uh, yeah, buy me this, buy me that. And uh, I, I don't know. It would work for us. I don't know what I need. Some new headphones. I was tempted to, I was tempted to set up an only fans and force people to subscribe to it unless they, they pay me more money and then I'll disconnect them. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, this this coming week, my 4K restoration of Event Horizon that we spoke about a few weeks ago, Ooh. that lands this week, and it should be arriving here. So next weekend, let's cover Event Horizon. It's also landed on a few streaming platforms yes. this past week, so we've all got a chance to see it. Uh, so we need to deep dive that film. We said a few weeks ago we wanted to deep dive it, but we said we'd hold off until I get my 4K restoration. A bit of a, a bit of foregone conclusion. We both love it. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a Paul W S Anderson film, so of course I love it. It's the <laughs> um, but Paul it's W S Anderson. Paul w. S. Anderson film for you. Yeah, the... uh, but yeah, there's been there's been a lot happened over our time off, hasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I I could fill out the reviews section with about twelve reviews this week. <laughs> I could fill out one. Now, now, granted, I have been away on holiday, and it's actually been great not to not to worry about seeing anything. Um, secondly, I can't see anything, even if I tried, because I, I, I mentioned this on a show just before I went away, as I had a, a, some eye surgery, uh, and because of the nature of eye surgery, I had to have one eye done at a time. So, in one eye, I'm I'm absolutely crystal clear. The other one is like looking through. Do you ever remember Moonlighting, the series Moonlighting? Yes. Whenever you saw Sybil Shepherd, she'd always had that faint glow around her. Yeah. As they, uh, there was, in fact, they made a joke about it once in the episode, like <laughs> putting a stocking over the lens. And uh, I, everything's like that for me. So once I get fixed this week, I can I, I feel I can go back. I actually turned down going down to the cinema, which I, I, I very, very rarely do because I, um, I've i just not been able to, to see properly. I And we're going to be talking about this in, in the reviews, but I watched Prey, and I was so disappointed, not with the film, but with me being able to watch it. And I've neglected to watch things like Sandman, which you know I'm a huge Sandman fan. I've been gagging to watch it, uh, but I'm holding back until I can sit and watch it properly. I might give The Grey Man a go this evening, but I have to sit about two inches from the screen to get get it anything in, in any clarity so we'll see with the amount of films that i've uh, plowed through uh, over the last couple of weeks we're basically going to focus on a few films that we think are more key this week but i'm going to hold off some of the reviews because we know that the next two months is quite light yes, on our releases 
So if I've got this backlog of older reviews to draw upon, which are on streaming, because they're on streaming, there's no time-sensitive stuff on there, so we can talk about some of them a bit later on. I mean, one of them that I was going to talk about is one that's been out on streaming for a good month and a half anyway, and I finally got round to watching it. We'll hold it that off. It doesn't matter anymore, Andy. That's the thing. It doesn't. It's only if it's at the box office that I think it's important yeah. to get the reviews out while it's there at the box office. Because whilst we never say that you should listen to us and only go with what we say, if you're one of those people who likes to listen to what other people think, like ourselves, before you make a final decision to go to the box office, it's important that we keep you up to date. As Absolutely. We We're doing the Lord's work. We are. We are indeed. Um, I did comment as well this week. The, um, after I said that like I was going to be staying in Banbury a bit longer, someone was like, oh, they're going to keep you there forever. I just I posted out. Uh, don't forget, if I say I'm looking forward to Venom 3, that means they're holding me with, <laughs> without my, <laughs> against my will. <laughs> I just think you've entered into this sort of uh, prisoner territory. And if you do try to leave, there'll be some uh, uh, big white inflatables chasing you down the street. Oh, Rover will come and retrieve me. <laughs> oh, that makes me, that makes me happy. <laughs> and as we bike, what kind of a show do we have for you this week? Well, we've got a full one. I can guarantee that. We've got reviews aplenty. We'll be talking about the new Predator movie that landed on Disney Plus this week, Prey. And is also going to be talking about... It landed at the box office last week, DC Super Pets. And landed this past week, Bullet Train. Two films that I was hugely, hugely looking forward to. Did they live up to expectations? Stick around and find out. You're going to be listening to a deep dive on the Richard Donner classic, The Omen. Check out to see if we survive until the end of the episode. But before any of that, of course, we have the news. And boy, do we have a lot of news. So we're going to start the news as we always do with a quick look at the box office. What's flying high? What's not doing as well as expected? Is Bullet Train speeding past DC's League of Super Pets? Come on, you've got to you've got to go for is Bullet Train on track for a good record, or okay. has it been derailed on the first weekend? I think you've said it. I'm going to leave you with that. <laughs> so yeah, as expected, this weekend Bullet Train took the top spot in the US. It finished the weekend with thirty point one million. Uh, DC League of Super Pets dropping down into second place with eleven point two million this weekend. Nope. In third place with 8.5 million. That comes out this coming weekend in the UK. So looking forward to seeing what it performs internationally. Thor Love and Thunder still holding in there with 7.6 million added to its total. And Minions Rise of Gru on 7.1 million, taking the fifth place. Here in the UK, it's not a lot of difference, to be honest with you. Uh, Bullet Train in top spot. It's taken 2.9 million over the opening weekend, plus two days previews Wednesday, Thursday last week. DC League of Super Pets in second place, 6.2 million total to date, 1.2 million taken this weekend. Minions Rise of Gru in third place with 1.1 million. Thor Love and Thunder in fourth place, taking another 938,000. And rounding off the top five is Elvis in fifth place, still bringing in the audiences, taking another 737,000, taking his total in the UK to 22.7 million after seven weeks of release. So that's the box office. Shall we talk about, because this happened a, a couple of weeks ago during our hiatus, the, um, well, all the Marvel news, everything that was announced at the uh, SDCC panel by Marvel? I think we need to because uh, there was so much. Marvel really dominated the San Diego Comic-Con to such a degree that there's not much news from anyone else from Comic-Con 
as a result because they just, I mean, Figi took to stage and revealed the next few years with, interestingly, some emissions because they're clearly holding back for their own D23 slate presentation next month. Six films and six series for 2023 and 24, which I can run through. The dates that they've got planned and Marvel are pretty good for sticking to dates. So February next year sees Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which will be okay. followed by Secret Invasion on TV, which will be followed by Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 at the big screen, then Echo on TV, Loki Season 2 on TV, and then we get to July. We're only up to July 2023, and we've already got all that. The Marvels comes out in July, then November sees Blade finally arrive, followed closely by Ironheart on TV, and then sometime around about the Christmas to early 24, Agatha Coven of Chaos. Into spring 24 with, and this was a big reveal, wasn't it? Daredevil Born Again. Yeah, we're looking forward. 18 episodes of that in spring 2024. Yeah, that, that was the big surprise is that everyone was expecting Daredevil to be making a resurgence, either as a support character in other things like Echo, etc., and maybe getting his own show. But no one expected to be told that it's going to be an 18 episode series, especially when most of the Marvel series are about seven or eight so, episodes yeah, long I think, each. I think WandaVision has probably had the longest episodes. Wasn't that nine, eight or nine? Yeah. So this is like, this is a, a first for Marvel on TV to be really going for the long format TV series. Will it work though? The worry is that, I mean, what I love about the short format TV series is everything's tight and packed together. I'm hoping this doesn't end up dragging out too much. We then get, Captain America New World Order in 2024 in May and then finishing July 28th 2024 with Thunderbolt. Yeah, well, and that's not even to mention that they've announced that they are going to do an Eternals 2. Yeah, Chloe Zhao has been confirmed to be returning for that. November 2024, we finally got a date for Fantastic 4. No director yet. There's no director, no casting, nothing's really been um linked up there but we've now got a date and then you enter into the territory of 2025 and 2026 which hasn't been fully fleshed out and everyone's all eyes are on next month's d23 to get reveals of this because we've got two untitled marvel films in 2025 which will run first and third with the second and fourth films that year being avengers yes the avengers are back what avengers they will be we don't know but it'll be the kang dynasty and secret wars come on I said it two years ago that Secret Wars is going to be the next stage. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite obvious. Yeah, because we kind of talked about this particular arc being a little bit aimless. It's not built to anything. You know, the first arc built mm. to the Avengers, the second arc built to Thanos. But this has felt uh, as though it has no overall aim. It doesn't feel as though there's been a direction. Even the end credit sequences haven't sort of pushed a, a big bad. Mm at this stage and i know they couldn't do what they did with thanos because that's just repetition but it, it hasn't felt as though there, there's a direction on these movies it's uh, it's almost been a case of let's throw everything against the canvas and see see what turns out to be art uh, and we've had our issues shall we say yeah with this um and, and just before we go on and talk about some of the things that you're going to announce we you, you didn't even get into talking about I am Groot. Yep. Spider-Man, the freshman years. He's right around the corner. Uh, what if season two? Uh, I know you're looking forward to the highly anticipated X-Men 97. And then there's hey. there's the animated Marvel zombies as well. Yeah. I mean, 2026's slate lineup is four untitled Marvel films. And now, only a few weeks ago, I was saying that I'd be happy if they'd only had like one or two Marvel big yeah. events 
films a year. I'm happy with the TV series. I can pick look, looking at some of the titles that have been released. I can picture myself starting to get psyched up again for as many on the big screen as I can. My only worry is that you know we're seeing at the moment that the box office does well around Marvel films for the first week and then drops off. Yeah. And because that Marvel films are huge releases, other studios want to avoid releasing against them, and their films end up into dead zone release weeks and the box offices struggle so the cinemas need to start working out how to map out schedules to keep consistent business but four marvel films a year is certainly good news for the box office especially two avengers films in 2025 although the russos will not be involved in the avengers films how you feel about them i don't know how i feel it's probably a good thing because the obsessive use of drone shots in the gray man really annoyed (laughs) me and i'd hate to see them annoy me that much in a marvel film but loads of other news. I mean, Secret Invasion was revealed. Maria Hill, played by Kobe Smulders, and War Machine, played by Don Cheadle, were confirmed to be reprising their roles. Um, and, and, you know, they said with Secret Invasion, this is the first crossover event that they've done mm. on the TV side, if you don't count the Defenders, I guess. Uh, Quantumania showed off Kang and also confirmed confirmed that MODOK is going to appear. Yes. <laughs> which uh, I... I I'm I'm interested. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy showed a trailer sizzle, which revealed Adam Warlock, played by Will Poulter, Ooh, and flashbacks that. to a young Rocket. You won't have seen it because it was a Comic Con exclusive only. Oh uh, right! And James Gunn has said that he didn't want it to go out in the open yet. He's putting together something at present, and we should see something soon. But he didn't want because it, it was rough cuts gotcha. sizzle reel, uh, so he didn't want people prejudging what the production values are going to be hey, based on a rough cut. But what we did get is we got our first uh, teaser for uh, Wakanda Forever, Black Panther 2. We did, yes. Uh, which has started a whole wave of speculation as to who it is who's the Black Panther in that final shot towards yeah. the end. Which has also sadly brought all the misogynists out the woodwork who are saying, if that's Shuri, we need to see her training in fighting montages to believe that she could be an effective fighter. Yeah, because we saw that with every other... Oh no, we never see it with any male characters do we We just accept that they can fight uh we can't accept that shuri who comes from like you know the royalty of wakanda where everyone seems to be trained in combat you're not going to accept that she she's been trained you have to see it really grow up get out of your mom's basement and get a life i think that's a new t-shirt design if we're gonna go yeah you know, we've been talking about doing file. t-shirts that's grow what up do. get out of your basement <laughs> get out of mum's basement so so that's due in november we know that. that's due in november uh the guardians of the galaxy sizzle reel also showed a young rocket uh, I'm calling it now. Rocket dies. Well, we know some some folks aren't going to make it out at the end of uh, end of it. I'm gonna I'm gonna put money on Dax. And we got the reveal that Maria Bakalova is voicing Cosmo the space dog. Finally, Cosmo <laughs> is going to have an active role in the Guardians. Uh, and again, if you've never read the comics and you are wondering why am I obsessive about this dog, you will find out the same way that you found out why I was obsessive about a talking tree and a talking raccoon. <laughs> uh, and we also got the um, high evolutionary who popped up in the crowd dressed in full costume. Chuck Woody Iwuji turned up to the Comic Con and paraded onto stage in his full regalia. Looked amazing. Blade will start shooting in October. And we get Blade, don't we, November of, of next year? We do, yes. November 3rd. There's just so I much. Yeah. There was no mentions of Deadpool. There was no mentions of Mutants. There was no mentions of Shang-Chi. But all projects have been hinted at or spoken of previously. And word has come out that the reason why they can't push forward with the Mutants in the MCU is due to a time frame thing on the actors from the Fox universe. Okay. That they signed up that if any things go into production with these characters by this date 
before this date, they have to be played in it. So obviously they're waiting until those contracts expire before they can start bringing them in. Although we did get it kind of, didn't we, with uh, Ms. Marvel? Yeah, yeah. We, we've not seen each other talk about the last episode of Ms. Marvel, which was a, an absolute joy and uh, not the best received of, and I don't mean critically, I just uh, as far as viewers go, but boy, did I have a good time with it. Yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I, I, it represented the character from the comic. I know the powers were different, but I was fine with that because their personality and the character. Yeah, she was a charmer. Was right. She was an absolute. And it dream. really does help that Iman Valari is clearly a huge fan. Yeah. Because she put everything into it, playing a fangirlish character. Yeah. From a fangirlish perspective, she was marvelous. Absolutely marvelous. I can't wait to see the Marvels to see her playing alongside other characters on the big screen. It absolutely brilliant. Talking of, of characters on the big screen. On the small screen, we saw the extended trailer for She-Hulk. We did, yes. I'm I'm in for that. Then we saw the TV spot, uh, which landed uh, yesterday, which had our first shot of Daredevil. Yes. In his classic gold and red suit. Yeah. Now, I I know Kevin Feige is a big fan of the the gold and red suit, which goes back to the very first issue of, of Daredevil. Comic fans will know this. Before Wally Wood had the great Wally Wood uh, reinvented the suit with the classic all red suit. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems like um, Charlie Cox is back in the MCU in a big way. Yep, it looks like he's going to be quite pivotal in a few series coming up. They, they've clearly decided that all of those Netflix shows, whilst they were never considered full canon, they're now going to kind of become canon, maybe with some changes. Very exciting. It's so exciting for the Marvel and everything that they put out in Comic Con was just blew everyone away. So, I mean, talking of mutants, have you heard that the boys star Giancarlo Esposito, and I just say the boys, but I mean Breaking Bad, uh, Usual Suspects, uh, Better Call Saul, uh, Mandalorian, Giancarlo Esposito, he's met with Marvel studios with the hope to play the mcu's professor x yeah um i'd I'd be down with that yeah different direction we've not seen that before so uh great actor let's see if it pans out or whether it's just wild speculation based on him having a meeting and he plays something different but let's see Uh, meanwhile at san diego comic-con whilst marvel were dominating the main stage over in a toilet cubicle somewhere, <laughs> Warner's stepped out and so and showed us uh, trailers for Black Adam and Shazam, which are films that are pretty much due out by the end of this year. Yeah. It seemed that they were embarrassed to mention anything about the troubled projects of Aquaman 2 and The Flash. And then Comic-Con finished and everything, everything, and I mean everything, good news and bad news, all started to spill out. It hit the fan, I think is the uh, operative term. Yes, So in sequence of when these events took place, the first thing that happened is a few days after Comic-Con, it was revealed that Ben Affleck was going to pop up in Aquaman. It was revealed by Jason Momoa in time-honored tradition of social media posts on Instagram. And this straight away started like, why is he popping up in there? I thought Michael Keaton was supposed to be in Aquaman too, in a small role. And so it started, as you can guess, the hashtag brigade, jumping on board saying, they're restoring the Snyderverse. They're not restoring the Snyderverse. Please stop that. No, if you if you catch an episode that we did a couple of weeks ago with the Rolling Stones <laughs> piece, I can definitely, definitely put my hand on my heart and go, they aren't restoring the Snyderverse. I don't think it's going to happen yeah. in this particular quarter of the multiverse. The replacement of putting Ben Affleck in there is more down to the fact that the Flash movie was supposed to come out before Aquaman 2, but now it's coming out much later, which means that having Michael Keaton suddenly popping up in Aquaman 2, when he's not being introduced via Flashpoint's multiverse opening, wouldn't have made any sense. So they scrapped it, 
And he's basically just taking that role and they reshot the scenes with him in there. Whether they've reshot the scenes with Amber Heard is still open to interpretation <laughs> because uh, there's there's nothing confirmed on that. And then, well, then we got into the juicy stuff. This is the stuff that has really made people go, whoa. The Batgirl film that is pretty much in the can. And to use Zack Snyder's turn, terms, it's in the can. It's finished. Let's show a photograph of some cans to show that it's in the can. Has been scrapped. The film has been scrapped. A 90 million costing film has just been written off, apparently for tax deduction reasons. This is this is pretty huge news and I'm and I'm open to an answer, but can you remember anything like this ever happening before? Well, industry insiders are saying that this is unprecedented. Yeah. This is you know, this is something that they just can't understand. Um it's not just this, they've also scrapped the close to the end of production Scoob sequel. And you'll know I've got a love for Spook yes. Scoob, and I was looking forward to more of that animated universe. But that's been scrapped as well. And this is scrapped not in like, oh, we're not releasing it on the big screen. This is, it's not getting a big screen release, yes. and it's not going straight to streaming. It's completely written off as a film and will never see the light of day. Well, never say never. Um, you know, in 10 years' time, you may just one day, out of nowhere get an announcement that, that Batgirl is being released. But I, I think this is this is pretty damning news. And, and, and these are my reasons. One, it's a hell of a kick in, in the teeth to all the cast, um, the directors. We know are decent directors because, hey, we've yeah. just talked about uh, Ms. Marvel and their episodes yeah. absolutely shone. Um, I wasn't a, a big fan of Bad Boys, but you know what? No. They know how to point a camera and they know how to shoot action. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of talent. Now, there was still in the midst of post-production. So um, there were things that I guess could have been fixed in post if there was. I've, I've heard rumors of nobody liked the costume. It looked like a TV well, pilot. Um, well, there's very mixed reports about the test screenings. There's some reports that say that they went well. But other avenues such as THR have reported that they were poorly received. According to the report from THR, though, it, the film was shown with temporary VFX and score and scored in the low 60s. Now, low 60s sounds like it's bad. But um, when they screened when they screened the first It film for a test audience, that scored in the low 60s. And also the upcoming Shazam film has scored in the low 60s. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It just means there's still work to be done to finish it off. I'd expect something under the 60s to be considered, whoa, yeah. this, is a, this is a disaster. So it shows that the low 60s is not a bad score from a test audience. No, I mean, hey, uh, Mobius. Let's look at Mobius. Uh, <laughs> you know, that un was universally panned and, and the trailer was universally panned and nobody cared about the film when it came out, but it still edged out a release and, uh, uh, and made no impact on people's lives whatsoever. Always remembering that this was intended as a HBO Max movie. Mm. It was then announced that the film seemed to be going well, if you remember this, yeah. and was going to therefore get perhaps a European cinema release. Yep. So what's gone wrong or what's happened since that announcement? Well, what appears to have happened is Zaslav has come in and just, and Zavlav, Zaslav is a money man. He looks at the end figures and he's just gone chop, chop, chop. He said along the lines of like, it wants to be quality that they want to do. In his words, you look at Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman. These are brands that are known everywhere in the world. 
and the ability to drive those all over the world with great stories is a big opportunity for us. We've done a reset. We've restructured the business. We're going to focus where there will be a team within a 10-year plan focusing just on DC. It's very similar to the structure that Alan Horn and Bob Iger put together very effectively with Kevin Feige at Disney. We think that we could build a long-term, much stronger, sustainable growth business out of DC. And as part of that, we're going to focus on quality. So his reasoning is basically, we're getting rid of anything that might be low quality, that might just be branching off and going in its own directions. And we're going to streamline things with a 10-year plan. We heard about a 10-year plan before from DC. We heard about it before Man of Steel was coming out. How did that plan out? Well, clearly we got all the films that they told us, you know, because we've already seen The Flash that came out in 2018. Oh, no, it didn't. (laughs) They've done this before. And with the way that Zaslav has just basically chopped now, basically going, oh, low audience scores on the test screenings. Let's cut this for tax losses. What's going to stop him having the same reaction when one of their film underperforms? Because that's where DC have made the problems all along. Man of Steel didn't perform as well as he did. Quick, shoehorn Batman into the next one. Batman versus Superman didn't pass a billion like it should have done with those two big names. Quick, like, let's get rid of the idea for Justice League. Let's uh, shrink it down to one film. It's all been reactive because they panic. They don't let things breathe and grow. Marvel have had some duffs. Marvel have had some, like, lower box office ones. They're still plowing ahead because they've got confidence in the long-term strategy. I'm not convinced that Warners will change and be confident in their long-term strategy. And I reckon this 10-year plan in two years' time, will be scrapped completely. It's also getting confusing now. They've built a universe, and and this is for the majority of fans. Now, this whole universe idea, when Marvel introduced it, was still pretty fresh. Yeah, you can argue that Universal did it first with with monsters. But, you know, this was pretty revolutionary to build build a universe. DC then decided, of course, we need to build a universe. and, And that was always the problem. That was the problem starter for me, was this idea of, of, of building a universe because Marvel were doing it rather than letting their yeah. films breathe. Um, they'd had success with Dark Knight. Um, they had zero success with Green Lantern, and that was supposed to be the, the get-go. It's they threw everything at this idea of a universe, and what they didn't have was a structure to do it. Yeah. And therefore, everything felt kind of rushed and kind of thrown in, and we were left with the mess that we that we got and, and are still ultimately paying the price for uh now we've got um a joker movie and now we've got uh the batman movie and we've got a flash movie and a shazam movie and we've kind of proved to a degree we don't need a universe yeah with dc so we can have individual projects individual projects where it seems to work best but along the route we've had things like birds of prey as much as you and i enjoyed it uh second suicide squad film yeah it's just it, it it smells of panic and, and desperation and and it and it smells of of lacking a coherent vision we still don't know where films such as blue beetle stand right now we do know that the supergirl movie which was potentially going to spin off from her appearance in the flash is unlikely to go ahead now uh, but james gunn has reassured Peacemaker fans that season two is still greenlit and is still happening. So at least there's some like little silver lining on these clouds. Uh, Lady Gaga and Joaquin Phoenix have been confirmed to definitely be starring in Joker 2. So we will see that, which clearly shows that they're not going for a structured connected universe. Yeah. Because if they're still allowing the Joker film to take place, and we know that there's a second Batman, the Batman film, that will be um, going into production, 
So they are still going for the individual projects. So how does this fit into a 10-year plan similar to Marvel? It doesn't. Mm. So Zaslav, it just seems to me, is just throwing out sound bites, thinking that's what the fans want to hear, without actually realising there's nothing to justify what you're saying. Just mentioning HBO Max, what has gone pretty quiet is the, and there has been industry chat about this, even though we've not talked about it, is that J.J. Abraham's been brought in to revolutionise the HBO Max movies. So we were supposed to get a Constantine, Justice League Dark, Gotham Knights, from what I've just heard, has been cancelled now. And that was pretty much in pre-production and, and in development and, and a quite a long way down the line. So nothing's come out of the J.J. Abrahams ranch at all. Around the whole HBO Max aspect, they've suddenly removed a chunk of their original titles from the service. The Witchers, Superintelligence, Moonshot, American Pickle, Charm City Kings, all of them have just suddenly vanished without warning, which, again, is suspected to be a tax write-off purposes before the deadline later this month. Right. And rumours are also coming out that Warners are considering moving the release dates of Aquaman, which is currently tagged for 2020, March 2023, and The Flash, which it's expected that Aquaman will take The Flash's spot in June, and The Flash might just vanish at this point. Well, we I, I, it's looking likely for me. I'm, I'm not going to put any money on it. I am not a betting man. But we know that the problems that have arisen around the whole Ezra Miller saga are they going to now just go, you know what, we don't need this. Um, let's let's write this one off as well. I mean, DC are a mess right now. Warner Brothers have just literally shown creatives that they have no care for creative vision and care only about the money. Writing a film off for tax purposes is an insult to everyone who is involved in the Batgirl production. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And it's quite sad seeing the responses from those involved in the production. You've had, uh, you've had the stars of it. You've had the directors. You've had the writers responding to this mess and you can't help but feel sorry that they've been put into this situation that they've they've dedicated a year or so of their lives mm. into something that they were hugely passionate about just to be told no one's ever going to see it and um, the same goes for paul dinney yes he of batman animated series who was involved in the scoob sequel and he's commented that yes i'm the co-writer but also why cancel a 95 percent finished holiday movie this close to fall when you're guaranteed kids will be watching it right after Halloween until at least New Year's. It makes no business sense, especially as both kids and parents dug the preview screening that we ran. Yeah, very dark days. And let alone, we've not even mentioned what potentially might happen with Fantastic Beasts, which underperformed last time. Are they in that for the whole run? Yeah, watch this space. We will tell you when we know, but... uh... This is something that's constantly unfolding. Every day you log online and you find more news linking to it. Only yesterday we found out that Walter Hamada almost quit at the news of Batgirl being cancelled, but has agreed to stay around until at least Black Adam releases, and then he's going he's gonna to walk away. Right. I didn't hear that one. And also, Warner Brothers' stock market shares price plummeted after their trading investor update, which is never a good sign because your trading investor update should be when you see your stock market price go up because you've gone, this is where we see our future. But the stock market doesn't agree with them and gone, oh, we see you plummeting. It's a mess. And this is something that over the next few episodes, we're still going to have more news on. This is ongoing news and it's just constant. And talking of falling apart, uh, the news landed this week that Tomb Raider 2 has fallen apart again. Yes. Clashes between Alicia Vikander and a director saw the budget spin out of control 
And then came the news that MGM have lost the rights. Yeah, because the project has been stalled for so long. And, you know, th- this was one that everyone involved in it wanted to get it done. They just wanted to make sure it get done right. It's gone past the time frame. So the rights have now reverted back to Graham King and GK Films, which means that a bidding war is now underway for a new studio to pick it up. But all the contracts for the stars and the talent were with MGM. So it's more likely that if we see Tomb Raider on the screen again, it will be a reboot as opposed to Misha Green and Alicia Vikander hopping back on board again. There's still a chance that whoever picks up the rights will negotiate contracts with Alicia Vikander and we'll get a chance to see her in the role again, but it's unlikely. Yeah. So let's not hold our breath. In the meantime, for Tomb Raider, let's just look forward to the Netflix animated series. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I thought Alicia Vikander was great in the, in that first Tomb Raider film. It had a lot of problems. wasn't a great movie, but I thought she was the highlight and, and yeah. disappointed because I think she deserved a sequel and, and deserved to do something more with it. So is there any good news out there? Uh, well, Michael Mann's Ferrari film has landed Jack O'Connell, Patrick Dempsey and Sarah Gordon as the latest additions to the cast who are joining Adam Driver. I love the fact that Adam Driver is going to be in a driving film. Uh, (laughs) Penelope Cruz, Shailene Woodley and Gabrielle Leon. And filming is underway. Uh, The film is set during the summer of 57. Ex-race car driver Ferrari, played by Driver, is in crisis. Bankruptcy is stalking the company. He and his wife, Laura, built up the company from nothing 10 years earlier. And it focuses on their tempestuous marriage struggles, the mourning of of one son and the acknowledgement of another. And how Ferrari turned everything around by rolling the dice on one race, the 1,000 miles across Italy, Mille um, Miglia. O'Connell and Dempsey will play drivers Peter Collins and Piero Taruffi, while Gadon is playing actress Linda Christian. Yeah, it's Michael Mann. It's got car racers in it. This is going to look great. Omar Sy is to lead John Woo's remake of the classic The Killer, which has been on and off again for about, about the same time as Tomb Raider 2, mm-hmm. as if not longer. It came out in 1989. It's a classic, and a deal has been done to remake at the streaming service Peacock. And he's um, John Woo's directing it, I believe, and he's hired Omar Sy to star. Yep, Woo is returning to direct it. That makes me a bit more interested. Uh, because I'd like to see what he does with the remake of his own properties. Uh, Creed 3 has been delayed, moving from November this year to March next year. Uh, The project, which is the first Rocky film without Rocky, will see Michael B. Jordan returning, not just as star, but also making his directorial debut. Do you hear that uh, Sly Stallone was a little bit unhappy with the fact that they are looking at doing... A Drago spin-off. A Drago spin-off, yeah. Yes, uh, because on the back of the Creed 3 news... MGM reported that they're developing Drago, which is a spin-off of the Rocky and Creed franchise, Robert Luton having been hired to pen the script. But Stallone has uh, expressed a displeasure in an Instagram post. He doesn't name anyone, but he says that a 94-year-old producer and his children are, in his words, once again picking what is left off the bones of another wonderful character. I mean, this is coming from Stallone, who picked the bones off Rambo. <laughs> of all of his characters. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a bit rich for him to start criticising someone else. He added, I am sorry to the fans. I apologise to the fans. And most of this is in caps as well. He went caps, so he was angry. I never wanted Rocky to be exploited for this greed. Hashtag no shame. Hashtag sad day. Hashtag parasite. Okay. Quite a strong message from uh, Mr. Stallone there. Indeed. 
the Drago film will build out a backstory about Russian boxer Ivan Drago, which was played by Dolph Rundgren in the 1985 Rocky IV and also in 2018's Creed II. It's unclear if Lundgren or Florian Munto, who portrayed Ivan's son Victor, will reprise their roles or whether they're going to recast. Plot specifics are under wraps. But whether you want them or not, the, the Rocky franchise is expanding out in various directions. Uh, the Creed 3 move, must I must point out, it now puts it opening against Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. So I'm sorry, Creed 3 is just going to get destroyed at the box office because <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons for the win. <laughs> Michael McDonough's Banshee of Inurition trailer landed this week and it reunites Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson from that most wonderful of movies. Oh, in, in Bruges. In Bruges was such a good film. And uh, I'm always there for a McDonough film anyway. I, I love his almost satirical way of approaching yeah, three serious drama. Fantastic. He's an absolutely brilliant creative. And thankfully, he's not working for Warners, who will probably just cancel his films and write them off for tax purposes. <laughs> and Keanu Reeves is starring in The Devil in the White City. Yep. Uh, nicest guy in Hollywood is making the move to television in an adaptation of Eric Larson's nonfiction novel, The Devil in the White City. And that is for TV. He will play Daniel H. Berman, a brilliant, fastidious architect racing to mark his mark on the world and serial killer. D.H.H. Holmes, who might not have gained the infamy of Jack the Ripper, but is allegedly to have killed a slew of people around the time of the 1893 World Fair in Chicago. Intriguing stuff. Rounding off the news this week, and we always say it's really sad when we have to do this, but it's particularly sad this episode, because whilst we've been off air, and literally one of these actually happened the day after we recorded, um, I felt like our deep dive which was looking at a film that this person starred in. But there's been four really sad losses that have hit us hard this past couple yeah, of weeks. Yeah. Uh, starting with, as the aforementioned, Paul Savino. Now, we spoke about Romeo and Juliet on our last recorded episode. We did. And he played uh, one of the heads of the households in there. And we mentioned him as part of it, as always bringing something great to the screen. And this is someone who, it, it's interesting looking back at his career, because he was well known for his mobster roles or crime boss roles. But his early career was, he generally played law enforcers, Sergeant D'Angelo in Streets of San Francisco, yeah. who got his short-lived spin-off, Bert D'Angelo Superstar. Uh, he played Sheriff Willis in Chiefs, and he even had a stint on Law, on law and Order as Sergeant Serretta in the early 90s. And along the way, I mean, you mentioned it earlier in the news, but uh, he, he popped up as David Addison Senior in Moonlighting. Uh, yes. I, I think everyone popped up in Moonlighting at some oh. point. So. But it was once he played Paul Cicero in Goodfellas that he made such a huge impact as a crime boss in such a way that it's hard to see him in any other kind of roles, even though he's well and truly proven himself in a variety of roles. He popped up in Romeo and Juliet, like we said. He popped up in The Rocketeer. I was going to say, The Rocketeer, fantastic. One sad loss uh, that literally happened after we'd recorded the previous show and we'd only just spoken about him. And then, of course, we lost the great Bernard Cribbins. Now, anybody in England, well, everybody in England at some point has been touched by a performance by Bernard Cribbins, whether it was the Wombles, whether it was his slew of comedic roles, whether it was Doctor Who, whether it was Doctor Who, Daleks' Invasion of Earth. Everybody loved Bernard Cribbins. He was a national, a national institution in every good sense of the term. Much, much loved. 
much, much missed. I think I not only remember him from um, voicing the Wombles, but I recall that he had a huge run on Jack and Ori. Yes, I used yes, to he did. love him telling the stories on Jack and Ori because he was such... He, he's demonstrated it in voice roles that he's done over the years. He's got such a charismatic presence. Also, Carry On Films. I'm a huge fan of Carry On Films. One of these days, we will deep dive the whole Carry On fr- franchise. Uh, but he popped up in a few Carry On Films and was always memorable. And in recent years, he popped up in the new gen- for a new generation in the new Doctor Who series, yeah. playing Wilfred Mott for 10 episodes uh, with a real heartfelt finale to his character. This is a loss that... It, you know, Bernard Cribbins is a loss that people in the UK will really have felt harder than anyone else in the world yeah. because of how how he was part of our upbringing, regardless of where you were. Yeah, I mean, I, I've just got to point out, there was a little clip that appeared, it was either on YouTube or it was on Twitter, of some filming, some uh, Super 8 film of the making of the Railway Children. So everybody did like a hello and waves, mm. not Bernard Cribbins. He did a skit uh, because that's the kind of guy he was. And of course, he was also uh, the, the songwriter, said Fred, which, mm. uh, which is um, one of those things that is so unique to England. Comedy records. Uh, fantastic. We were, we, we were so much loved. Uh, and I mean that, that genuinely, absolutely loved. Then we got the sad news of, and the reason for our deep dive this week of The Omen came about because... I needed to see some films with this actor in again as a result of hearing the news. David Warner passed away and David Warner was the face of pretty much everything that me and Lee love. From horror with The Omen and Company of Wolves, disaster movies, Airport 79, comedy, Time Bandits, The Man with Two Brains and sci-fi, in particular sci-fi with roles in things such as Tron and a wealth of roles of different characters in Star Trek over the years. Yeah. His was a career that spanned six decades, mostly in support roles, where he always brought something special to every role. On TV, he impacted with a wide array of turns, popped up in Twin Peaks, he popped up again in Star Trek over and over. Penny Dreadful, and lent, he was in, if I remember. Yep, and lent voices for characters such as Ra's al Ghul in the Batman animated series in the 90s, and the Lobe in Freakazoid, which is a role that he reprised for Teen Titans Go in recent years. He never appeared to be one of those actors, even though he was a stage actor and a Shakespearean actor. He never appeared to think himself as being too good for anything. He enjoyed everything that he did, and he gave everything the same level of professionalism, no matter what genre he was playing in. And we've said so many times, like with various like names, that they were never leading man, but their presence in a film really made something special. And David Warner is one of those people who always brought something special to a role. Absolutely. He uh, played Admiral Boom in the, the recent Mary Poppins Returns. Of course, he found a new lease of life as the villainous psychic Spicer in Cameron's uh, <laughs> blockbuster Titanic. Mm. The first thing that, that springs to mind is is uh, Martin, A Suitable Case for Treatment, which is the film that put him on the map. Uh, but for me, his, his all-time classic role, uh, other than Time Bandits, uh, was Time After Time, opposite Malcolm yeah. McDowell, where he played uh, Jack the Ripper. And if you've never seen Time After Time, it's a beautiful, comedic, romantic, thrilling, small science fiction film directed by Nicholas Meyer. And the cast are fantastic. And Warner was unbelievably great in Time After Time. I have so much love for that film. And one day it'll be on our deep dive list. 
And Star Trek not only lost one name this past week as a huge name, Nichelle Nichols passed away aged 89. And while she'd worked on a variety of shows and films over the years, she's most notable in the role of Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek, a role that was iconic for a variety of reasons. She was one of the first black women in a major role in a major TV series. A reoccurring role, absolutely. Which she was tempted to leave in the first series until Martin Luther King asked to speak to her at a a celebration at one point and told her the importance of her role in such a high-profile show. In his words, he he told her, you cannot, you cannot, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing, dance, and can go to space, and who are professors, lawyers. And he went further to say, if you leave, that door can be closed because your role is not a black role and it's not a female role. It can be filled with anybody, even an alien. And that was the key thing, is that she wasn't put in there as a token character to, you know, you are a black female character. She was just a bridge crew character. And it showed black people as equals, which was huge for the civil rights movement at the time. We had the first interracial kiss. Was it the first one on TV? There's arguments and debates about that, but it was the one that really made the headlines. And she played the role right the way through her career as the series became films. And she recently reprised it voice-wise in Star Trek Prodigy, the animated series. The episode Kobayashi saw her reprise her voice role. For me, this is another bright star in the galaxy that's now gone out. But the mark she's left behind shines brighter than any supernova. She was, in the truest sense of the term, a trailblazer. For all the reasons that you've mentioned, she was uh, a, a talented singer, uh, a talented actress, and she did have a life after after Star Trek, believe it or not. Um, she was um, an icon, and there aren't many people that we can talk about who sadly passed away who have absolutely broken new ground. So Michelle uh, Nichols passed away at the age of 89. Um, always be remembered. She beautiful, absolutely beautiful in Star Trek and an absolute game changer for the industry and for uh, African-American women in television. Sadly, someone else we have to say goodbye to. And that is the news. You're listening to your favourite movie podcast. Well, we hope it's your favourite because we try very hard to bring you a brand new podcast every week that's full of film goodness deep dives you name it we've got it if you're not a subscriber then hey why don't you become so all you've got to do head over to your favorite podcast platform and hit the subscribe button and remember to leave a like come on become part of the film file family and that's not all want to know more want to know more about the family here's andy head on over to twitter and engage with us on tweets film file uk Head on over to social media platforms everywhere else. Just search for Film File UK. You might find us on there. You might not. If we're there, we might talk to you. Uh, but if you definitely want to talk to us and get a direct communication back, you can contact us via email. Yes, email. Podcast at filmfile.uk. Any emails that you send, I'll happily reply to. Thoughts, suggestions, opinions on films. What are your favourite films of this year so far? What are the favourite films of the year that you were born in? Anything that you want to get in touch with film-related, or even if you're tracking down a film that you can't remember the title of, 
give us some clues as to what you can remember from it and we'll see if we can find it because we think we're quite good at this i think so i really do we, we think that we could work out most films from just five clues so test our knowledge and it's now time for this week's deep dive we're going back to the heady days of 1976 for a supernatural horror film directed by the late great richard donner written by david seltzer this was an international box office hit that starred gregory peck lee remick david warner billy whitelaw patrick troughton leo mckern hugh scary music because this is the omen for generations the thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth position and power robert and kathy had a perfect marriage and a beautiful child then something terrible happened and then it happened again and they knew it was an omen gregory peck lee remick the omen came out in 1976 on the back end of the craze started by the success of the exorcist and the film follows the plot of damien thorne a young child replaced at birth by his father unbeknownst to his wife after their biological child dies shortly after birth a series of mysterious events violent deaths occur around the family and as damien enters childhood they come to learn that he is in fact the prophesized antichrist considered to be one of the all-time scariest movies considered to be the film that shot richard donner into the stratosphere with the success of this that led him on to superman but for us it's just a very good classic 1970s scary movie Andy, you've had a chance to watch it again. Does it hold up? Well, let, let's put something into context for what this film meant to me when I first watched it. Now, obviously, I didn't see it in 76. I was only three. Yeah, that then. would have been wrong. There'd have been uh, <laughs> all sorts of uh, um, child services involved. But, you know. But once it got to the VHS era, I, now, I was raised as a Roman Catholic. Okay, I never knew that about you. Yep, I was an altar boy as well. So in my youth... Seeing this film on dirty VHS all those decades ago felt like I was watching something sinful. It was a film about the Antichrist and his entry into the world. And yes, I was not old enough to watch it, but my mum knew that I enjoyed horror. By the time I was 10, I was already reading um, Stephen King books. That I'd been watching Hammer Horror since like the age of five or six. But my mum would always screen a film first, and if there was no sexual content, she deemed it fine for me to watch. And there's no sexual content in The Omen. So it was fine for me to watch. And the key moments all stuck with me. The it's it's all for you moments, the impaled priest, the decapitation, powerful striking moments that haunted and terrified my early child mind. But the moments that always terrified me the most was the graveyard scene okay. and the revealed bones of the jackal. That chilled me to the bone. And it's always made me have some sense of trepidation going back and rewatching it because could the film still impact on me in that same way that it did as my early mind did. And it's been a good decade or so since I last revisited it. In fact, it was probably around uh, the time of the remake in 2006. And I'm pleased to reveal that watching it this week, it has really aged well, most notably due to the direction, the pacing, and of course, the chilling haunting score there's something genuinely creepy about chanting yeah. and on uh, an operatic poorly phrased latin i remember children of the stones and that still terrifies me yeah it, it the score emphasizes every element of it um, the film holds up well because it's got a gradual build 
It keeps an atmosphere of un- unnerving energy buzzing away throughout. Donner wanted to make the film entirely ambiguous as to whether Damien was the Antichrist or whether it was just in the mind of his father who was going insane. And whilst he lost the end battle with the studio, he still keeps a lot of the scenes somewhat ambiguous wherever he can. I absolutely loved revisiting this this week. I felt chills at the moments that I felt chills, at the build-ups, the, the reveals of like people being predestined to die through photographs that had strange markings on them. Everything, even though I knew it was coming, unnerved me. And what stood out for me this time is how good a child actor was playing Damien, especially in the scene when they're approaching the church and he has the look of genuine terror on his face as it gets closer. And then again, the music emphasizes moments of it and draws it up and plays into the scene well. But that kid was absolutely terrified and conveyed it beautifully. I don't know whether they were beating it up in the back of the car or, or something to get him looking like that. But no, that kid genuinely gave across this feeling of utter terror. Yes, it holds up well. And I thoroughly recommend that you revisit it yourself. I, I revisited this a couple of years ago, strangely enough, on Christmas Eve, <laughs> about three or four years ago. And, and one of the things that my memory had done to the film and um, how it played out was how there's not much in the way. Well, in fact, there's no excess gore. Uh, no. The film is ramped up by suspense and and it is almost a classic ghost story because we, the audience, are are seeing more sometimes more than what the characters are and know a little bit more about it. And and there's a there's a very and, and Donna was great for doing this. There's a, a real a real world that he set up, a world that we know and he and he and he did that with Superman and that's why I think he, he was the perfect director for Superman. He got impressive performances out of the cast. He made it recognizable in a world that we lived in. There's there's an abundance of of any gratuitous violence. And so when the when the scares do happen and come up, they land impressively um, because again, it's it, there's there's nothing in it that is is a huge special effects sequence. They are, mm. you know, the 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 classic way that that um, Patrick Troughton dies or or David Warner dies in it. It's a very sort of matter matter of fact approach to this, uh, and less so than say The Exorcist to a degree. And it's a really straightforward narrative. It's um, it's a it's a very classy film, and and I think that's what's earned it its reputation because apart from costumes and the sort of set design, the story still still works, even though you know the the recentish remake still managed to cock it up. It's it's a very 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 straightforward, unraveling, almost Hitchcockian film. Yeah, I, it's interesting that it's a film that could have just been seen as disposable trash and indeed the critical response at the time was very very mixed it came about as you suggested at the head of this as a result of the exorcist in 1973 harvey bernard chatted the idea about a motion picture about the antichrist with bob munger after they'd been discussing bible stories as a way to go okay the exorcist has just done tapping into demon spirits and possession can we tap into the bible and then it fleshed from there david seltzer was hired to write the screenplay and it took him a year to write the screenplay and it could have just been trash but what lifts it above the trash that it could have been is the great cast yeah gregory peck and lee remick as expected on marvelous form they don't approach it as trash they lend all their weight to it to make it feel real but in the support cast is where it really shines patrick troughton 
father, as Father Brennan, steals the small moments that he has. Billy Whitelaw has the creepy menace as Mrs. Baylock. She's over nice at times, but she's also very sinister looking at other times. Leo McKern with a brief turn as Bugenhagen, making the most of it while he can, which he went on to reprise the role for the opening scene of Omen 2. And then the late, great David Warner, who really lends the most of the film. He's the photographer who starts to notice strange happenings and whose photos start to reveal fates being played out. His role as Keith Jennings is a character who knows he has an eventual fate rapidly drawing near, but is still driving to uncover the truth and prevent the end of the world. And Warner played him to perfection. Yeah. That even though you knew he had a bad fate coming, it still shocks you when his fate catches up with him. I've got to point out Patrick Troughton. Never seemed to get as much work after Doctor Who, but this is probably one mm. of his, his standout roles uh, post, post Doctor Who. Uh, and for a lot of people... That's how they know Patrick Trout. This film is still as impactful today as it was then. Even though some of the effects do look a little dated, it's the atmosphere that more than fills up the cracks. Although it is worth noting that this film owes a huge apology to owners of Rottweilers, (laughs) whose beloved pets are forever marked as devil dogs due to their use in the film. So, as you said, the film was an international box office success. And of course, what happens when you've got an international box office success? There's got to be a sequel. And in 1978, Damien, The Omen 2, appeared. This was my last encounter in The Omen series uh, until the remake, which we'll speak of in a little while, directed by Don Taylor. Um, This time starred William Holden, uh, Lee Grant, Jonathan Scott Taylor. William Holden was originally offered the Gregory Peck role, turned it down because he didn't want to be in a film about the devil. But, however, he came in to do uh, Damien, The Omen 2. And... um, a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about this because, to be honest, I probably saw this 30-odd years ago. And so it's yep. not it's not on the top of my list. Uh, as said, directed by Don Taylor, but an uncredited director on it was Mike Hodges, who was also involved with the screenplay along, alongside Stanley Mann. Andy, you've watched this recently. I don't remember having much love for this. So... Should I? Should I go back and check this out? Now, I'd never revisited Omen 2 or The Final Conflict at all until this past week. I watched them, same as you, about 30 years ago. And it shows how much of an impact they had on me that I've never felt the need to revisit them. The scenes from both films kind of got muddled up in my brain. And I couldn't remember, you know, I thought I was waiting for certain scenes to play out that weren't there because they're from the other film. Because Omen 2, re-watching it this week, it's, it's a bad film. Is it? Now, they wanted Donna, didn't they, for it? They did. Uh, and he was busy with Superman. They actually went to Mike Hodges of he of Get Carter, but that wasn't working out. So they brought Don Taylor in, who's one of those guys who's got a reputation for uh, uh, finishing films on time and under budget and did a lot of, I uh, think he did, one of the Planet of the Apes films. Yeah. This film sees a teenage Damien, now in military academy, after being adopted by his father's brother. And after a shonky opening scene, the film simply becomes a series of scenes where individuals suddenly feel that something's wrong with Damien and then they get killed in the next scene with no driving story behind it. The production values are cheap. It looks TV movie-esque. Some of the dialogue and the delivery actually had me laughing rather than feeling concerned or unnerved. It was so ham-fistedly put together. It's, it's a lazy and flat sequel that, yes, it, it has some nice shocks in the deaths, you get like attacked by birds. You get a, a, a memorable 
scene with a lift plummeting down and then someone getting severed in half by the cable from the lift. But it forgets to actually build a story that makes sense. It just feels like a cheap imitation of the first film. I thought to myself by the end of it, this is similar to, you know, how when a big film comes out now, The Asylum put together their own interpretation of it. This felt like an Asylum version of The Omen. It was that awful. By the time the end credits rolled, I felt like I'd actually been dragged through hell by the Antichrist myself. Do you know, the only memory I have of this film is the bird sequence and the fact that it had Lance Henriksen in it. Yep, Lance Henriksen's in there, and he just, he doesn't get a lot to do, and nothing seems to really gel. Like I say, it just feels like a series of moments rather than an ongoing story to show the rise of the Antichrist and how he gains his power. Now, the third film, story-wise is stronger because it is the rise of the Antichrist and his building of his armies. It saw the third film, Final Conflict, saw Sam Neill playing Damien, who's now the, the head of Thorn Industries in the, and also the US ambassador to Britain. And it shows how he grows and he's got this threat that the second coming of the Nazarene, as he keeps referring to him, will come and destroy him. And so he's trying to stop the Nazarene from being born. And story's great, but the film is dull and bland. Now, Richard Donner came back as an executive producer. Graham Baker directed this one, who gave us probably most impressively Alienation. Other than Not that, <laughs> it, I've, I've, again, only seen this once. It feels flat. Sam Neill wasn't a big star. He was a, an Australian actor. He was at this point being much touted to play Bond. Whether this movie stopped him being Bond, I I, I don't know. But I, I again, don't remember having a lot of love for this one. It looks better than the second film. I'll give it that. It does look like it's shot stronger and it does feel like you put more effort in. But by this point in the series, it just became a, almost formulaic and unnecessary. The first film was such a strong, chilling opener. We didn't need to see how Damien then grew up. We didn't need to see him as an adult. We didn't need to see him try and dominate the world because we know how it needs to end because it needs to end with him finally being defeated. And I think what makes The Omen really great as a standalone film is that it just leaves that whole looming presence of he's out there somewhere and he's going to rise at some point. Whereas this wraps it all up with an awful, awful final act that also involves like a a terrible, terrible straight out of a kid's Bible image of a Christ saviour kind of figure glowing in a window of an abandoned church. And it was shocking. (laughs) No, I I, I have (laughs) no memory of this whatsoever. Apart from San Neil is... As I say, probably more interested when this came out because he was he was touted as being uh, a potential Bond. There was going to be uh, an, an Omen for Armageddon that was planned for release in 1984 uh, with a screenplay by Damien Omen to Stanley Mann and Graham Barker would return to direct. But um, that never happened. And then there was, uh, I believe, a TV movie. Uh, Omen for The Awakening, which uh, focused on a young girl who was the daughter of the Antichrist. Right. And at that point, we were, all of us were probably gladly to be out. I've not revisited this. I remember watching this when it first came out. It was one of those, like, me and my mates at university, let's rent this out uh, from the video store. And we we just laughed throughout the whole thing. Um, it's, It's not good. 
is it better or worse than Omen 2? I couldn't say for sure without revisiting it, but I've got no intention to revisit it. But you did revisit 2006's uh, The Omen remake, uh, directed by Irish director John Moore, again written by David Seltzer, which is one of those remakes which feels absolutely, totally unnecessary and almost a shot-by-shot remake of, of Donna's original. It's pointless. It's an absolute pointless remake. It was made because it was getting close to 2006, so they had this cunning idea that if they release an Omen film on June the 6th, 2006, the marketing alone will make it worth it. It only had a 25 million budget. It took 120 million at the box office, so it was a huge success. And there's a lot of things to like in it. You know, the cast, Liev Schreiber, is fantastic. Julia Stiles as Catherine Thorne is really well-placed. Mia Farrow as Mrs. Baylock. You know, there's a really strong cast. David Thewlis was in there. Pete Postlethwaite, the great Pete Postlethwaite. We always have to say the great Pete Postlethwaite um, as Father Brennan. Really strong cast throughout. But like you say, it was pointless, almost shot-for-shot remake that doesn't quite hit the nerves in the same way as the original. The music isn't as strong as that original. The story's pretty much exactly the same. It's a wasted watch. It's not a bad film by any any stretch of the imagination. It's, you know, it's the second best Omen film that there's been, but it's just unnecessary. Yeah, it, it's it's a bit like Gus Van Sant's um, almost shot by shot remake of, of Hitchcock's Psycho. There is mm. this is is copied rather than anything brought fresh to it. John Moore didn't ever really recover as a director. I don't think he was a particularly strong director in the first place, but this film isn't bad really bad that you're going to look at it's not omen three bad it's just unnecessary absolutely unnecessary it is interesting the legendary critic the late great roger ebert gave the remake three out three stars out of four and a thumbs up which was a huge contrast to his negative review of the original film so he actually preferred the remake over the original so you know swings and roundabouts everyone's got different opinions but if you're a fan of the original Omen, just stick with the original Omen. Don't watch any of the sequels and don't bother with the remake at all. Wise words. If you want to uh, watch the Omen, Andy, where can we find it? You can find Omen 1, 2 and 3 all on, and this is in the UK, Disney+. Plus. Yes, the Omen films on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> you know how I said that as an altar boy, I felt there was something rather sinful about watching the Omen on VHS. I now feel that there's something sinful about watching something like this on Disney+. (laughs) We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for some reviews. So Andy has been doing the Lord's work in light of watching The Omen uh, and seen (laughs) plenty of movies, as I said earlier. I've not had a chance to watch anything due to this uh, issue that I've got and the fact that I can't see (laughs) has made it um, absolutely... um, so difficult to to want to go and watch anything. I'm having real problems, but I did because I felt I had to. I felt I had to contribute, but I was gagging to see the latest Predator movie on Disney Plus. Pray. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. I'm trying to protect you. Protect me from what? Whatever did this, I can kill it. So the fifth in the Predator 
series if you don't and why should you include aliens versus predators because why not predator kicked off in 1987 under directors john mctiernan's basically muscle fest a platoon of oiled up muscle men with biceps bigger than my legs freudian uber guns taking out uh, an alien invader and it's much much loved of course there were sequels uh, which to me the second one was really darn good yes there's an ex-girlfriend of mine in it and that's always difficult makes it difficult to watch in our household but uh, i've got a lot of love for uh predator 2 i've even got love for predators i've never mm. seen the predator because you andy told me never to watch it uh and that brings us round to prey we talked about prey ages back uh, that it was going to land on disney plus and it has done so this week so to earn her stripes as uh, a warrior comanche hunter naru played by amber midthunder must take on the ritual and bring down a particularly dangerous beast unbeknownst to her though she and her tribe are themselves being hunted by a predator I got a chance to watch this yesterday and I didn't see it in the best way because I had to keep stopping it every sort of half an hour because, um, I, as I said, I can't see properly. But boy, was I knocked out. I've heard a lot of people talk about this being the second best Predator. and I'm going to equal that out with being as good as Predator 2. But I had such a great time with this. Yeah, me too. Stripping the Predator series back to a simple tale of hunters against another hunter takes it back to what made that first film stand out only this time they haven't got like big machine guns and grenades and bombs it's bows arrows and various like handmade traps dan trachtenberg keeps it simple makes very great use of bloody effects and i love the new creature design of the predator it's familiar but with some nice additions to design that make it feel almost new as a concept. Amber Midthunder, absolutely magnificent throughout. And she was great in Legion, weren't she? Yeah, in Legion, she was fantastic. So, you know, we were knowing what to expect that she can deliver. But she holds the film together perfectly. Uh, her character's plight to prove her worth as a hunter, her slowly developing skills, and her way of looking for unique ways to use weapons plays out in a believable manner which means that the final act feels as natural a flow as the final act in the original film was. And it follows the same beats. Yes, you could say that it's not original. It's too close to the original film to stand on its own. But you know what? I think after the last few f films have kind of taken the franchise in weird directions, and I'm talking about The Predator and the Aliens vs. Predator films here, we need it to be stripped back to the bare bones to remind us how good Predator can actually be. This reminded me more of the Dark Horse comic run than it did mm. anything else. You know, by taking it back 300 years to America's colonial past. So uh, we have, as you said, the great Amber Midthunder as Nauru. Uh, she's a competent Comanche fighter and hunter who flatly rejects her people's notion of, of a woman's role. And therefore, you see what we didn't get a lot of the time with the Predator movies. You, saw, you see a fantastic arc. Uh, and you see this this one woman take down a predator in the most cunning ways that she can. And as you said, the, the predator has been re redesigned to a degree without losing the impact of what we know what the predator looks like. So let's do something different with the looks. And you've we got away from the kind of the muscle man predator that we saw to something that's a lean, mean killing machine again. Mm. 
if there was any disappointment watching this film, initially it was the disappointing aspect of having to watch it on the small screen. I thought to myself when the film was starting, oh, I'd love to have seen this on the Yeah, there were some really big wide shots, weren't there, weren't there that sort of set the scene of, of, uh, of that part of the US back in those days. But then when, when some ropey CGI animals kind of popped up and showed that it had a very restrictive budget, I felt, I felt at that point that on the big screen, they would have been far too jarringly obvious and might have distracted from the quality of storytelling and presentation that was going on. So I actually feel that this suits streaming more than the big screen. I know working in the cinema industry, that should be sacrilege. But, um, you know, sometimes something does sit well on the small screen. And in addition, this showcases, and this is something that we all, every time that we talk about a Netflix 200 million budgeted yeah. big action film. Looking at you, the grey man. They're always inevitably disappointing. And so you've generally got this perception that anything going straight to streaming is going to be garbage. But this has shown what something going to streaming can actually be. And seeing the buzz out there online from the Twitter sphere and Letterboxd, etc. People are talking about this in a way that no one talked about the previous Predator film when it got released at the box office. This has generated a buzz because everyone's got access to it. Everyone's got a chance to see it and people are getting a chance to appreciate it. If this had gone to the cinemas, if this had been on the box office, I reckon half of the people who've watched it this weekend would not have gone to see it. I've got to agree. I think I think it's by it being so pared down, by taking that risk of not having a big name, by having a female-led character, by the period piece setting, they had a better chance of exploring that with this Hulu, because it was designed for Hulu in the US and we got it on Disney+. Plus. They've, they've had that ability to take chances with a smaller budget and, and a, a much leaner story again. Yep. It's a cracking film. I was engrossed throughout and I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Um, there's nods to the earlier entries scattered within a line of dialogue here or a, a certain kind of trap design there, even a particular pistol. Um, and the film plays well as a legacy sequel worthy of the franchise. Over the end credits, at the start of the end credits, there's animated retell. Well, there's a, a kind of like cave drawing, painting kind of retelling of the story of the film. Worth watching because there's a little addition just at the end of that. Yes, I saw it, um, and we won't give it away. So no. this is a thoroughly entertaining, familiar, and yet still fresh take on, on the classic Predator, brought up to date for 2022, and a great example of, you know, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Go back to mm. what makes Predator films work. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, against all expectations, about equal to me for Predator 2, Andy, but uh, I've got to mention that, that Amber Mid-Thunder just is a great screen presence and had a yeah. damn good time with this. Absolutely recommended. Everyone should get this checked out. And if you want to check out the other Predator films, uh, they're all available on Disney Plus as well. I'll be there. Maybe not Predator 2 because it causes too many arguments in our household. <laughs> what else have you got, Andy? So I got a chance to see DC's latest entry onto the big screen. It's DC League of Super Pets. I have come to recruit you. Actually, I think we'd just rather stay here. We have Spanish class every Miércoles. Super Pets and Mamas Latinas present the Miércoles Words of the Week. You're super strong, and your tail is now made of fire. In fuego, as in on fire. Time to save the Justice League. Estoy listo. Sí. Super Pets. 
Rated PG. So Crypto the Superdog has been Superman's best friend throughout his life. But as Lois and Clark get closer and Crypto realises that the Man of Steel is ready to propose, he begins to get a bit jealous. Whilst that's going on, Lex Luthor's causing trouble as usual, when he drags an orange kryptonite meteor from space, believing it will bring him powers, only for it to work in an unexpected manner, granting powers to a gang of stray pets in a store, one of which has plans for world domination. As the Justice League are taken out of action, it is up to Crypto to work with others to save the planet from decimation. Now, the trailer for this didn't sell the film as well as it could have. And as a result, I went in with average expectations, only to find that I had an absolute blast with it. It's a fun family film with slick animation and a humour that hits on all levels. There's enough fun pokes at the DC established universe for the comic book fans out there, whilst never feeling like it's getting in the way of enjoyment for those who aren't well versed in the lore. Much in the same manner that Teen Titans Go to the Movies managed. The voice cast are great. The Rock and Heart still seem to have that great chemistry together that they do in live action. And it makes for a fun pairing once again. But it's in the extended voice cast that the real fun happens. Especially with Keanu Reeves as Batman. Which now makes me want to have him voice the role in more films. League of Super Pets is a cracking origin tale. With a lot of fun packed into the runtime. And it's a nice summertime treat for the whole family. The best origin tale that DC have brought to the screen in recent years. So that's Super Pets. It's not high on my list. Uh, I'll probably wait till I can find it somewhere on some sort of streaming service rather than uh, go and see it at the cinema. Bullet Train, I know you've seen. I I was gagging to see this. But again, I just want to hold back. I (laughs) contemplated going to the cinema and seeing it. And then I just thought I'm not going to enjoy it in the way that I I should be. Uh, Would I have enjoyed it? And I, I, I've been, been on bullet trains, which watch are fantastic. I think I'm kind of in. Okay, here we go. Batman, what's wrong? I'm not the only one doing a job on this train. You don't remember me. You look like every white homeless man I've ever seen. Really? On August 5th. Something else going on here. I was waiting for us in Kyoto. Fight. You stab me? Enemies. We need to come up with a plan. Become allies. Hold on! When we get off this train, we work together or we die alone. Maybe there's a little head trauma. Maybe. Bullet Train, exclusively in theaters. Now, this is a film that I've had my eye on since the first announcement. Coming from David Leach, who worked on the first John Wick, Deadpool 2 and Atomic Blonde, I was already invested even before the cast list started to grow. And boy, what a cast list. Brad Pitt, Joey King, Sandra Bullock, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, once more, unrecognizable, Brian Tyree Henry, Hiroki Sonada, Andrew Koji, Cameron Fukuhara, Zazie Beetz, Michael Shannon. As each name got added to the cast of a film simply described as multiple hitmen fighting on a train, I expected a slice of stylized action, disposable fun and frenetic energy and humour. And the film delivered exactly what I was after. Pitt plays Ladybug, an unlucky assassin who's trying to do simple, uncomplicated jobs now after realising his bad luck just doesn't help in high-pressure hits. Sent on a simple package retrieval task, he has only to board the bullet train, find a case and exit at the next stop. However, as bad luck would have it, things don't go easily for him and he soon finds himself stuck on the train with various other parties who are all tasked with jobs relating to that case and the underworld boss, the White Death, to whom it belongs. Cue witty exchanges of dialogue, brutal action and some over-the-top moments of crazy towards the end as Ladybug tries desperately to remain calm throughout. From the start, I was hooked. Pitt is in fine form in a role that seems so perfect for his approach. But as soon as Johnson and Henry popped up as Tangerine and Lemon, I was well and truly on board that train. The pair, who were referred to as the twins at points, bickered, 
argued and talk nonsense in an almost Tarantino-esque manner that they swiftly become the primary stars of the film. That's not to say that everyone else involved doesn't get to have some fun moments. Indeed, even the smaller roles play with great impact. But those two together make you want to see more about them in a spin-off film of their own. Throw in a couple of uncredited cameos, one of which had me rupturing with laughter at the screening. And the fact that the story is so very slight is swiftly forgotten, as what is presented is just so much fun. I'm glad you liked it because that means that I I can go safely as being probably the first thing I'm going to see. What else have we got? So coming up at the cinemas this week is Nope. We've been waiting for this for ages. Jordan's Peele's sci-fi horror, which uh, we don't know a lot about because we're avoiding all the spoilers that are out there being out in America. (laughs) So looking forward to talking about. Um, On Now TV and Sky, Black Sight sees Michelle Moynihan manage a secret black ops facility that imprisons dangerous and high-risk detainees, and she's just about to be transferred out. But then a high-profile target codename Hatchet is brought in. Oh, that old chestnut. Yes, it's a Sky original. Um, Netflix will see Lock and Key Season 3, and also Day Shift, which sees Jamie Foxx as a pool cleaner by day who has a secret job as a vampire hunter. And if you really want to suffer this week, why not pop onto Amazon Prime this weekend and watch Moonfall? (laughs) if you remember my review wasn't very um, praising of this film is it going to work better on the small screen no it'll probably be even worse (laughs) Uh, but disney plus this week has a few nice drops for people who like classic films once upon a time in america okay heat and king of comedy all land this week and lightyear landed last week which i will now get round to see it and that's it for this week but of course before we go you want to hear our neat things. It's been nearly two weeks, so of course you're desperate for a neat thing. Uh, Andy, uh, as ever, tell us about something that you've seen, watched, a you name it. What is your neat thing from the last week? So, I've been playing with my pussy. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Thank you, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, and this is where we cut the show right here. So, I've been playing a game on the PlayStation on and off over the past couple of weeks. Whenever I've been popping back from Banbury, I've been putting a few more hours in. And that game is Stray. I've heard of this. This is a game where you play a stray cat who's become separated from his family of family of cats after falling down into the decimated walled city in a not too distant future. And as you start to make your way around to try to find your way out, you get embroiled in a story of these strange robotic creatures that are living and residing there and trying to stop some strange evil menace that's permeating within the within this corrupted worldscape. And it's so adorably brilliant. It's one of those free-form games where you can just explore and you can check out things while you're trying to uncover clues, in, interact with people. But the, some, right from the start, the start section has you as a cat, just with a few other cats, and you're purring and you're rubbing up against them. And you can you can pad the floor like cats do when they sit on your knee and, the, and sit on digging your claws in. It represents everything perfectly about a cat. And as someone who loves cats, I am loving playing as a cat. It's so well polished. It's a beautiful looking game. The game mechanics are easy to learn, but so complex in how you execute them going forwards to complete different tasks. It's a smart game. It's out on all formats at the moment, and it's well worth picking up. We got it as part of the PlayStation Plus package, and I would have gladly paid full price for this. Stray on PlayStation 5 is a beautiful game. 
um, my neat thing. And you know, I've been away and I've, it's been a bit of a toss up. I was going to tell you about my holiday in Croatia, which has been an absolutely neat thing because it's one of those few holidays where uh, we didn't want to come back. You know, usually you're pretty ready, you're done, but this time really wanted to stay. But I'm going to tell you about the book that I read while I was away. Now, I've got this tradition that if I'm going on holiday, I need a holiday book and I will buy something and save it until I uh, either get on the plane or get to the destination and start reading. David Keop, whose name you will know, yes, he's a screenwriter for Jurassic Park. He wrote the first Spider-Man film, a whole slew of movies. Uh, his first novel is Cold Storage. And basically what it is, it's a summer blockbuster movie in book form. So Cold Storage deals with a basically a killer fungus that is uh, let loose from a cold storage facility, which has now been turned into one of those storage places. You know where you keep all your old rubbish, that drum kit that you'll never play again, that furniture you think you'll get. Uh, you'll you'll get round to at some point, in, in my case, loads of books. But anyway, this fungus is on the rampage. And if it gets out of this cold storage, it will spawn and basically become a planet killer. On every level, this book is just pure fun. It is, as I said before, a book version of a silly blockbuster. Now, that's nothing to take away from summer blockbuster movies and uh because we all enjoy them and that's what this book did for me i just had a great time it reads with such pace with a knowing sense of humor that we've seen in keop's work before had a fantastic time with it you know i'm having a fantastic time because i just couldn't put it down um, highly recommended it's available now in hardback i think it might now be out in paperback if you want to treat yourself to basically a movie in book form highly recommend cold storage my neat thing for this week and that folks is it we're done and we're out of here andy any plans for the next week back to work back down to banbury pretty much it uh using the time in the hotel room to plow through tv shows and get caught up i'm actually caught up quite well at the moment uh i plow through quite a lot recently although i've still not got past episode three of season one of Umbrella Academy. And I don't think I'm ever <laughs> destined to get past episode three of Umbrella Academy season one. I've got so much to catch up with. And when, once I, I've, I've really put off watching Sandman, as I said before, I'm gagging to see Sandman. I've been watching Lucifer because it's the easiest thing to watch where I don't have to give it my full attention. Yeah. So a heck of a lot to get through. I'll see you again next week, Andy, for another action-packed film file. But Andy, when the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky, and the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die from the eternal sea he rises. Sorry about that. I know it's uh, not what you expected for the next week, but we'll see you again <laughs> next week. It's interesting putting the, the bonus episode together because I've been taking like the early deep dives. Yeah. And we've literally just got up to this because it was the deep dives that we were doing during lockdowns. Right. Because there was nothing else out. And we've literally, th this was before Deep Dive became an actual part of the show. So there was a couple of episodes where there was actual content out and we didn't do a Deep Dive. Right. And it felt very weird going, oh, there's no Deep Dive on this one. Oh, shit. Next episode. Didn't we do oh, it right one from there. the get-go, Deep Dives? No. We, uh, it, it, it was about, we, we did the occasional looks at like 
because we did Highlander because Scott had never seen it. Right. So we wanted to look at it because like we were huge fans of it. And we got Scott to watch it. Okay. But we we only basically cherry picked every now and then of just going like, um, oh, th- there's not a lot of new films out this week. Let's just look back at an old film that we all like. But it wasn't a consistent thing. It was only from about episode 37 onwards that it became a regular feature. Oh, wow. I thought we'd done it right from the get. That's weird. It's funny how memory plays, but I I remember it that we'd always seem to be doing it. I mean, we did the bit where there was the movies that you'd not seen. Yeah, that that was uh, from like episode 21 through to about 33. Those were our lockdown um, movies, weren't they? Yeah, films that Andy hasn't seen. Yeah, which that replay that was in place of the deep dives on a few times that there was other content out. Right. Uh, it's it's interesting listening back through them and just hearing like how the format we've kind of tweaked it and refined it. Because um, it's, it's it's even doing the that radio one without yeah. you. It, it was the you know stopped halfway through to do the if you're listening and you want um you know you want to download the podcast etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. It's just in the DNA now. Yeah, you know, bit of blab at the beginning, movie reviews, and the only other thing we 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 brought in later was uh, box office. Yep. Uh, but no, I also, I mean, has um, uh, neat things been in since the beginning? Uh, neat things came in a, it, quite early on. It was round about episode. I think it was about episode seven or eight that we okay. first brought neat things because it was when we were doing round table discussion ones. Yeah, and we just basically said bring something to the table each week. Yeah. As a neat thing, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting evolution of the show. It's also interesting because though over the lockdown episodes that have been going back to listening to the the sound quality, yes, as we were getting used to remote recording and like working out what equipment sounds best, and yeah. you know, you you came through quite tinny quite a few times, so you got a different microphone, and then I would come through a bit buzzed. And so it's like I get a different microphone, and we finally settled on the kit that we kind of use now. Yeah, yeah. I bought this. I bought this mic during lockdown. I had a, a USB mic, which was never very good, and I had that, and that was re- a bit very thin. And then I bought this mic during lockdown. Retrospectively, I, I wish I'd spent more on it, but I didn't know I was ever going to work again or leave the house again. <laughs> so um, yeah, and I, when we first started, I did it on um, on my iPod headphones. Yeah. That was that's how we started it, and then that that's when we did it the other week by accident. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's really thin by comparison. You always you were always a lot more pitch perfect. Yeah, than, than mine was. But hey, we got there. <laughs> uh, hundred and twenty odd episodes later, twenty eight is it? Hundred twenty nine. Hundred twenty nine. Let me, Charlie. Should we dive Go into on. this week's then? Let's go into this week. All right. Three. I might actually I might actually keep that little chat and just put it on as a preamble before the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, why not? Or a bonus right at the end. Yeah. Mid-credit sting. 